Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. that mourners heard in Atlanta, Georgia, just this afternoon, as Rosalind Carter was laid to rest. The ceremony attended by all of the living first ladies and by President Joe Biden, former President Bill Clinton, and her longtime, her husband of 77 years, 99-year-old Jimmy Carter, who himself has been in hospice care since February. Jimmy Carter in a wheelchair, kind of angled back, covered with a blanket in the front row. Rosalind Carter was 96 years old. She and Jimmy, as I said, had been married for 77 years She was one of the first real modern first ladies. Um, I mean, there have been first ladies before who attempted to break out of the mold. Eleanor Roosevelt comes to mind, Roosevelt rather. Um, But she was really hampered by the times and the um, customs of the time. Rosalind Carter (laughs) kind of pushed through all that. She... um, garnered some enemies even among Jimmy Carter's own camp when she sat in on cabinet meetings. She was determined not to be simply a first lady who um, hosted teas and dinners and receptions. She adopted um, the practice of better mental health as her cause, did a lot to destigmatize getting treatment for mental health. And really did a lot to start bringing mental illness out of the closet, if you will. Her uh, grandson, many people spoke today, longtime TV newswoman Judy Woodruff, uh, joked that when she was first covering Rosalind Carter, when her husband was running for governor, she was a cub reporter. And she sensed a wariness in Rosalind Carter. And she said, eventually the wariness faded. She said it took 40 years, but eventually the wariness faded. Uh, Her grandson, Jason Carter, spoke very movingly and very touchingly about his grandmother. Uh, Listen to this. Secretary Clinton and Dr. Biden, we also welcome your lovely husbands. I mean, uh, this is a difficult day for my family. Um, 
But we have been so enormously gratified by the love and support that we have felt from across the world. So thank you so much. And as Reverend Warnock told me, uh, my grandmother doesn't need a eulogy. Her life was a sermon. And it was a mighty testament to the power of faith and to the power of a deep and determined love. And she lived this public love story that we all know of that has inspired the world, including in these last days. And I think of all the things she accomplished, her most viral moment was when they were at a baseball game and the Braves put them on the kiss cam. (laughs) And just like today, I mean, people were crying at the Braves game, you know. But we, we heard about it for years. It's amazing. But in my family... We all experienced those more private love stories. And she was my grandmother first. And she was like everyone else's grandmother in a lot of ways. Almost all of her recipes call for mayonnaise, for example. (laughs) We all got cards from her on our birthdays. $20 bill in it. When I was 45, $20 bill. Like... Just some of the stories being told by Jason Carter, Rosalind Carter's grandson, at her memorial service today in Atlanta. Um, apparently, a little at a, at a different part of uh, Jason's uh, speech, you heard how he welcomed former President Bill Carter and current President Joe Biden by basically thanking uh, their very accomplished wives for bringing their lovely selves to the party. Well, a a little bit uh, later in his speech, he also kind of made reference to the presidents that weren't there. You know, President Bush wasn't there, but Laura was. President Trump wasn't there. Um, But, of course, Melania was. Yeah, it was... um, It was a wonderful service. Uh, Clearly, this is a woman who was wildly loved by her family and uh, really appreciated by the rest of the country. Oh, by the way, just in case you're wondering, yeah, Jason Carter also took a swipe at Barack Obama for not being there, too. But Michelle was it. um, She was an amazing person. She truly was. And like her husband, well into her 90s, she was helping him build new housing for Habitat for Humanity. I mean, they were um, a couple who really lived their beliefs. And man, what a love story. What an incredible love story. Rosalind Carter laid to rest today at the age of 96 Just uh, not too many months ago, she was diagnosed with dementia. And uh, just about three days before her death, she, like her husband, entered hospice. Jimmy Carter, though, at the age of 99, still, still hanging on, attending his wife's service today, though he was in a wheelchair and he was covered up by a blanket. It was kind of one of those wheelchairs where you can kind of lay back a little bit. 
But he was there, apparently at his own request. A lot going on today. Let's take a break and we'll get to it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, there's a lot going on today. You know, we haven't done Chris Christie uh, Corner or Crazy Corner as we renamed it when we added Tommy Tuberville to the mix. Um, but Chris Christie was really making the rounds recently. He's been on ABC. He's been on CNN. He's been on MSNBC. And um, he really needs to to get that kind of attention and raise his profile because uh, it looks like Nikki Haley is starting to garner a lot of the never Trump yet deep pocketed Republican money. The uh, political group that was put together um, by, well, originally by the Koch brothers and then, but one of the Koch brothers uh, still runs it. Um They've decided that they are going all in for Nikki Haley. Um, our uh, former Illinoisan Ken Griffin, who now lives in Florida, is um, rumored to be also getting ready to write checks to Nikki Haley, which is kind of interesting. Uh, she still doesn't even in Republican polls um, outpace Ron DeSantis, who's apparently very cranky that Nikki's getting this kind of money. Uh, But Chris Christie is kind of um, taking a different tack. He is still going after Donald Trump, but he is um, he's also adding his commentary on uh, Nikki Haley uh, to the mix as well. Let's see. Like I said, he was um, he was making the rounds today. So um, let's start with Chris Christie in his appearance on ABC. Listen to this. We've seen DeSantis and Nikki Haley increasingly go after each other. I mean, they, they are taking Trump on a bit now, but but spend a lot of time going after each other. You're starting to take both of them on as well. Isn't this exactly how Trump wins is having that opposition uh, to him, the anti-Trump vote uh, aimed at each other instead of taking him on? John, look, I've spent the majority of my time going after the guy who's in first place. I'm going after Donald Trump. And all I point out about Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley is that they're not going after Trump. And I don't understand why they're spending time going after each other and not going after Trump. If all three of us would go after Donald Trump, well, then the, the most credible amongst the three of us in terms of those uh, those critiques uh, would wind up winning uh, winning this primary, I believe. And so we need to all be talking about the guy who's in first place. You know, I don't understand. I'm not playing for second place here, John. I'm playing to win. And that's why my campaign from the beginning has been that way. And look, Governor Haley has said things like she thought he was the right president at the right time. Um, she's also said that she'd be inclined to pardon him. Um, Ron DeSantis has had you know, a lot of glowing things to say about Donald Trump over time. I think we need to focus on who's in front here, who's bad for our party, and who would be bad for this country. And in my view, that's Donald Trump, and we need to go directly at him. Um, and that's why you're seeing people in increasing numbers come to our town hall meetings in New Hampshire, go to chrischristie.com and donating. They're doing the things that we see um, in the week after the last debate, John, um, we had our best fundraising week of the entire year. So things are really starting to pick up for us. And I think people are starting to focus. And that's why. Hmm. He doesn't really 
really say how much money fundraising really starting to pick up. Okay, Uh, I am. You know, the Iowa governor has endorsed Ron DeSantis, the uh, glorious uh, Coke committee. That's not what they call themselves. That's what I call them. Um, They've decided to back Nikki Haley. Ken Griffin says he's backing Nikki Haley. So we shall see. We shall definitely see. Um, Before we get um, back to Chris Christie, though, because he says more about money in the campaign and Nikki Haley. We'll get to that in a minute. I definitely want to make sure I have uh, time to share with you. Um, Former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, did an interview with a man who, when when Reich was Secretary of Labor, uh, there was a guy who worked for him by the name of Jared Bernstein. Jared Bernstein is now uh, Joe Biden's top economic advisor. And uh, they did an interview. The The new big guy did an interview with his old boss. And one of the things that they talked about inflation, and I may share that with you later. But what I want to share with you right now is, you know, um, they were talking a little bit about trade policy. And before your eyes glaze over, here's what is important to know about Joe Biden. Presidents before have looked at trade policy through the lens of what's best for American consumers. Bill Clinton signed the NAFTA agreement that ended up sending a lot of jobs to Mexico, which really made a lot of workers upset. But when those goods were made in Mexico, they were cheaper. So when they came back to the United States, they were easier to easier to afford. And that used to be the overriding view. But President Biden took a step back from that and said, what good does it do us to be able to buy cheaper widgets if it means that we put thousands of our own people out of work? That doesn't make sense. So Joe Biden's trade policy has changed Things are no longer evaluated simply on the basis of, is this good for consumers? But rather, is it good for workers? Because what good does it do you to have cheaper toilet paper if you're out of work and you're not getting a paycheck at all? That's the big picture. And that's something that is new with President Biden. And that is something that Robert Reich and Jared Bernstein talked about today, that Joe Biden has a worker-centric attitude. Listen to this. We very much think that if labor's flexing its muscle, that's good for them, good for their communities, and good for the overall economy. But I think in trade, it's a particularly good way to draw the distinction you're making. You know, I think a lot of uh, uh, administrations, probably on both sides of the aisle, looked at trade policy through the lens of consumers. If it's helping consumers through lower prices, we ought to do it. It's all good. Full stop. The way President Biden thinks about it is that, yes, people are consumers, and that's important, but people are not just consumers. They're also workers. And so your trade policy has to be not just consumer-centered, but worker-centered. And we think about that in almost every space we go into. And I know that this middle-out, bottom-up thing works. If we have a healthy middle class that's getting their fair share of the pie that they're helping to bake, 
That's good for them. That's good for their community. That's good for the overall economy. It's good for the globe. And that, my friends, is why Joe Biden is a great president. And like uh, Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin and others, I am behind Joe Biden 1000 percent. I think that he has been a great leader and will continue to be a great leader. One last thing. I I, I know there's so much that I want to share with you. And if we don't get to it today, maybe we can get to some of it uh, tomorrow or Thursday. Uh, But, you know, Michael Cohen does a podcast. I know that's probably a huge shock to you that Michael Cohen does a podcast. He does it with a guy by the name of, I don't know how you say his name, Mycelis. The two of them do this podcast they called Political Beatdown. And a little bit of history here. Michael Cohen, as you know, went to jail for Donald Trump and was his guy. Donald Trump was the sun, the moon and the stars to Michael Cohen until he realized that that street only ran one way. And Michael Cohen is now one of Trump's clearest eyed critics. Michael Cohen testified under oath in the New York fraud trial that Donald Trump is embroiled in right now. Donald Trump had earlier filed like a filed like a five hundred million dollar defamation suit against Michael Cohen. He was going to teach that Cohen guy a lesson to talk trash about him. Um, But then he dropped it. He dropped it. The he never really said why it just was uh, withdrawn, whether uh, right now he has too many legal bills to pursue a frivolous suit or whether his attorney said, you know what? You're going to lose. Do you want to spend money and lose or save money and just pull this? Long story short, Donald Trump pulled his um, his suit. But Donald Trump may at some point in the near future be back in court with Michael Cohen, because on this podcast that they do political beatdown, Michael Cohen announced that he was going to sue Trump that the um, the lawsuit and everything else, they were frivolous, they were retaliation, and he is going to come after Donald Trump. I want to share this clip with you. It has a couple of little glitches because that's the way the podcast went out. But listen to Michael Cohen. And Cohen, that's big news that you're breaking right here on Political yes. Beatdown, which you haven't told anybody anywhere else, no. which is that as a result of Donald Trump bringing this malicious prosecution, this malicious $500 million lawsuit against you, which he dismissed on the eve of his deposition, you are currently preparing a complaint against him for his malicious prosecution and the damage that he caused you. You're saying it here for the first time on Political beatdown, huh? That is correct. And look, as soon as we finish that complaint, obviously, um, hopefully it'll be on a Tuesday or a Thursday and we file it, you know, around the time of our 4.30 to 5.30 um, live episode. I will read off parts of it to you uh, to hold him accountable. Then if he's not held accountable, why would he ever stop? Why? Exactly. So uh, <laughs> Donald Trump has not seen the last of, of Michael Cohen. One other uh, bit of uh, testimony, only this is not 
We're not talking about court testimony here. We're talking about congressional testimony. You know, the Republican crazy-led House of Representatives has, among other things, been going after Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden! Hunter Biden! We want Hunter Biden to testify. We want the House Oversight Committee has asked Hunter Biden to come and testify before them. (sighs) Well, be careful what you wish for, because through his attorney, Hunter Biden said, sure, absolutely. You want me to come testify? I will. I only have one condition, that my testimony will be public not behind closed doors. Representative James Comer, who's the Republican from Kentucky, was the one who uh, wanted Cohen to, or Cohen, wanted Hunter Biden to come testify, and his lawyer, Abby Lowell, wrote him a letter saying, Mr. Chairman, we take you up on your offer. Accordingly, our client will get right to it by agreeing to answer any pertinent and relevant question you or your colleagues might have. But rather than subscribing to your cloaked one-sided process, he will appear at a public oversight and accountability committee hearing. A public proceeding would prevent selective leaks, manipulated transcripts, doctored exhibits, or one-sided press statements, Hunter Biden's lawyer said in his response to the lovely James Comer. Um, just this morning, James Comer said, uh, no, no, uh-uh. no, we won't agree that this will be public testimony. No, mm-mm. Like Comer's response was basically Hunter Biden's trying to tell us what to do and he can't tell us what to do. So there you go. Jamie Raskin, who, of course, we all dearly love, the Democrat from Maryland, said that Comer's response shows Republicans that Republicans have no confidence in their own case and they fear the exposure a public hearing would bring. He said, let me get this straight. After wailing and moaning for 10 months about Hunter Biden, Comer and the oversight Republicans now reject his offer to appear. Mm hmm. And so it goes. We'll see. Stay tuned. Hunter Biden said, sure, I'll come. But it's got to be open to the public. James Comer said, oh, no, no, that's that's not what we wanted. No, 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 no. Stay tuned, as they say in television land. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There was an announcement from the White House today saying that they had airlifted 24.5 metric tons. I don't know about you. I'm not very good with metric. I think that's more than 54,000 pounds of humanitarian supplies Vitally needed medical supplies, food, other nutrition assistance that's meant for the people of Gaza. The um, United States airlifted this material to Egypt. The United Nations is supposed to take charge of it from there and get it delivered to the people of Gaza. We are still in and it's more of a truce, a temporary truce than any kind of ceasefire, um, because 
The um, Israeli defense forces have made it clear that as long as Hamas is releasing releasing hostages, that they will halt their ground assault. That appears to still be happening. Uh, 30 Palestinians were released from Israeli prisons today. Generally, the rule of thumb has been that for every three Palestinians released, one hostage is released. So we can assume that another 10 hostages are either in the hands of the Red Cross or soon about to be in the um, in the hands of the Red Cross. This is a very complicated part of the world that I don't know about you, but I think most of us find very, very confusing. Who are the people? You know, what are the historical roots of the conflict? What role, if any, does religion play in this? To help us work through some of this, we are joined now by the professor and chair of religious studies and professor of global politics at Northwestern University. Elizabeth Shackman Hurd is here. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, since you are the uh, professor and chair of religious studies, <laughs> educate me <laughs> a little bit about the religions that are most prevalent uh, in the Middle East and what, if any way, they interact with politics in the region. I know that's enough for like probably an entire semester's course, <laughs> but give me like the idiot version. <laughs> you bet. You know, um, people often talk about this region as being in part defined religiously by the three Abrahamic traditions, which are Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And of course, each of those traditions, as you said, have multiple complex variations within them, many of which don't agree, you know, who's in, who's out, who's a real Christian, who's a real Muslim, who's a heretic, who's part of some other sect. So there's all kinds of disagreement around those kinds of issues. But those three monotheistic faiths tend to be um, quite powerful, quite defining in this region. Is the basis for the conflict the different religious beliefs? Is it uh, different ethnicities or is it a combination of both? It is both, but I actually have to say, Joan, that to understand this particular conflict, and this is where my work as a political scientist and my training in global politics uh, comes into this story. To understand the war in Gaza and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we absolutely have to understand a couple of questions. The first is that these groups, while they definitely have a religious aspect and a religious angle, what we're really talking about here is a fight over shared territory and shared land. And so while, of course, there are religious aspects of the claims to land because the territories that these groups are claiming are themselves considered sacred, that is not the whole story. It also involves access to resources, access to land, access to waterfront and ports, access to the pride of having one's own territory and exercising one's own sovereignty and self-determination over that territory. The other thing to keep in mind that complicates the issue of religion here is that not all Palestinians are Muslims. There are many, many Palestinian Christians. And in fact, 
we're seeing horrific violence in Gaza that is sadly uh, risks wiping out some of these Christian communities, destroying some of their houses of worship and rendering their lives next to impossible without food, fuel, electricity, and so on. So what we're seeing here is a conflict that, while it does have a religious aspect, isn't really defined exclusively by religious identities, but rather goes back to a contest over uh, claims to a piece of land, which is really at the heart of the conflict. Okay, you said that um, Christian Palestinians are really... um being gone after now by by whom and is it because they're christian is that why i'm, I'm no, still a little i'm still in the 101 yeah. phase of this no no worries no worries joan no they're not being targeted specifically for their religious identity they're being targeted as palestinians so all palestinians who are living in the gaza strip uh, are being targeted in a kind of bombardment and collective punishment sort of modality or way of acting by the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. And the reason they're being collectively punished is because of the Hamas attack that we saw just out coming out of Gaza on October 7th, which took the lives of approximately 1,200 Israelis. Now, the reasons for that attack, of course, take us back from 75 years to the whole history that you were saying, kind of 101 history of this conflict. And that is a long story that I won't go into here, but let's just leave it at the fact that the war did not start on October 7th. It is a long and tortured uh, conflict between these groups over the shared piece of land, which includes the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and includes what we know of today as Israel. And that whole conflict has had various phases and various kind of efforts at peace building and peacemaking, some of which have been successful, some of which have failed. And today we're seeing uh, the collective punishment of all of the Palestinian people as a result of the Hamas attack. And that includes both Christian Palestinians and Muslim Palestinians. So tragically, uh, the Palestinian people, the vast majority of the victims are women and children are paying the price uh, for Hamas's terrorist attacks in Israel. When this um, terrorist attack took place October 7th, I had to I had to pull up a map of the region um, uh-huh. and I see, you know, Gaza is right on the ocean and then inland, basically abutting Jordan is this large territory, the West Bank, and then yes. to the north, Touching Jordan and mostly Syria and Lebanon are the Golan Heights. I always hear yeah. that, you know, for, for there to be peace in the Middle East, there has to be a two-state solution. Would one of these territories or somehow all three of them uh, comprise a two-state solution? That is definitely one of the uh, possibilities that people have been considering for some time is to try to carve out enclaves from those pieces of those territories or all of those three territories or parts of them and to create some kind of state-like formation. It's a little hard to picture because as you just well described, Joan, 
these territories are kind of separated from each other. So it's hard mm-hmm. to imagine a non-contiguous state. I mean, if you think about it, if you had to go from one part of the state to the other, you'd have to cross through Israel. So it's not entirely clear that that solution is realistic or practical or something that people who actually have to live there day to day would want. So this is a really difficult question. What would a viable two-state solution look like that would respect Mm -hmm. both people? And I think a lot of people in my field right now are pretty stumped and they feel stymied. They feel that what has happened is that Israel has created facts on the ground by increasing its settlements and taking over more and more territory to render the Palestinian proto-state basically minuscule or non-existent. And so there's a process of gradually pushing Palestinians out and making Israel bigger. And some on the Israeli right feel that that is their destiny, which is both a religious and political project. We must expand. We must become bigger. We must take all of this land. And others disagree. Other Israelis disagree and say, no, we want a two-state solution. We want to give the Palestinians their rightful self-determination. So Israelis themselves don't agree on what that would look like. And the same goes for Palestinians. Some I was of them just going to ask you that. Are, are, are Palestinians exactly. of one mind here? Of course not. And neither are the Arab states who have been their traditional supporters from outside Palestine. And here I'm talking about states like Egypt, for example. They do not agree. And that's part of why this has been such a vexing and longstanding and kind of torturous conflict, because it just feels irresolvable. There's so little scarce, you know, grounds for agreement among the parties, whether externally or internally. So, no, there are Palestinians who definitely in the very far fringes call for the eradication of Israel altogether. There are other Palestinians who call for a two-state solution along the lines you were describing with the little stateless, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and so on, perhaps go on. And then there are also other Palestinians and other Israelis who say, no, perhaps we need some kind of single state that would be a pluralistic democratic state in which we all could live, where all the peoples, whether Christian, atheist, Muslim, or Jewish, could coexist together. And that is a different kind of dream that right now seems very far away indeed. I'm speaking with the... uh chair of uh, religious studies and also professor of global politics at Northwestern. Um, We are talking about the Middle East with Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. We're going to continue our discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Northwestern University, Professor Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. She's an expert on global politics and religious studies, which is kind of exactly the sort of person you need to try to teach you or give you some kind of background on what is going on right now in the Middle East. You talked about how there's not agreement among Palestinians as to how to uh, divide things up to live peacefully. There's not agreement among Israelis how to do that. (laughs) So is this a terrorist attack by Hamas going to drive those factions farther apart or maybe, just maybe, 
finally make them realize that everybody has to come together and find a solution here. I certainly hope that it's the latter, Joe, and I think we're all hoping that uh, things could not really get any worse in the region and that therefore they have to get better. And we're hoping that that will be the case. It's really difficult to know, in part because it's very difficult to know who's going to speak on behalf of either of these parties. By that, I mean, in the Israeli side, we have a very far, far right extremist government um, led by Bibi Netanyahu, who is taking very extreme, expansionist, aggressive policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians, as I said before, bridging on ethnic cleansing. And on the other side, we have the Palestinians whose authority has been divided between two different leaders, one based, of course, in the Gaza Strip, and that's Hamas, and the other based, the more traditional Palestinian authority, based over in the West Bank. And so they have had divided leadership. Now, so we, we have far-right government in Israel with, you know, obviously serious issues of credibility and legitimacy after these attacks. And then we have a divided Palestinian set of governments, two different voices, who have been at odds with each other and have also been uh, kind of pitted against one another by the Israelis. If you want to get past your 101 level here, you can dive into the Israeli tactics to divide the Palestinian Authority so that they cannot unite as a front in opposition to the occupation. So you can imagine that if you're the Israelis, you would want these Palestinians to be divided, to lack any unity, and to not have any sort of collective voice. And indeed, that's been their policy. And so we've got these divided polities and very aggressive right-wing government in Israel, and it's very hard to know who's going to speak on behalf of the people of the region, the regular people who aren't anything fancy, who are outside of government, who just want to live their everyday lives, go to work, have health care, raise their kids, be safe, and get on with their lives, like most people do, who's going to speak on behalf of them? That's the big question I think that we're all asking right now. Talk to me about the countries surrounding Israel. Obviously, I just announced at the beginning of our segment that uh, a bunch of humanitarian aid that's coming from the United States is going to be flown to Egypt. The U.N. is going to pick it up there, whether it's the Red Cross or the United Nations people themselves, and take it into Gaza. So is Egypt neutral? Egypt has played a very complicated role in this conflict for many years. You'll recall that they do have a peace treaty with Israel, and they have enforced the uh, blockade on Gaza, which has been in place for 16, 17 years. Um, There are just two exits from the Gaza Strip, one into Israel in the north and one into Egypt at the Rafa crossing on the south side. And so Egypt has indeed been partnered with Israel in uh, enforcing this uh, very oppressive you know, open-air jail, is the term most people use, who visited Gaza uh, and creating these horrible conditions that have led to this horrible terrorist lash-out attack. So Egypt has been party to both sides. They definitely speak out of, you know, one side of their mouth on behalf of the Palestinians and on the other on behalf of their own interests, which involves securing the Sinai Peninsula and making sure that there aren't too many refugees coming in. 
so they have uh, kind of played both sides and have switched their allegiances multiple times. Um, of course, the public, the Egyptian public, is strongly pro-Palestinian. So that is something that the Egyptian government has to navigate and negotiate mm-hmm. all of the time. They have to kind of strike a balance and not become too pro-Israeli or they lose their legitimacy. Right now, Egypt's got a very oppressive military regime that simply throws anyone who opposes them in jail. So they don't really worry too much about democracy. We know that we're um, funneling our supplies through Egypt. We know that there's been a big fear of Hezbollah coming in from the north, from Lebanon. What about Jordan? I haven't been reading a lot about Jordan. Are they playing any role other than I think I saw uh, uh, one of the royal family putting Mm -hmm. out video statements? Yes, exactly. Queen Rania put out a statement. Maybe that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Very... um, well-publicized, and it was a plea, uh, a heartfelt plea for Palestinian dignity and rights, and to just please see them as human beings and not to simply cast them all as this, you know, evil kind of vermin that needs to be extinguished, which is the way the Israeli government was talking about all the Palestinian people. So she made a, a plea for basically humanitarianism and for moderation and for consideration of Palestinians as individual human beings. It was quite powerful. Uh, Politically, Jordan is, uh, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, almost like an extension of the United States in terms of its interests. So I would be very surprised if beyond those kinds of rhetorical gestures that we saw with the Queen, if we saw any substantial um, political movements on behalf of the, the Palestinians, I'd be surprised. They had pretty quiescent, pretty quiet, and pretty subservient to American interests. Now I'd like you to correct some, um, what I'm guessing, some misinformation or disinformation I've received because I've read things that seem to uh, be on opposite sides of an issue. For instance, Um, There was recently, well, you know, recently, 10 years ago or nine years ago, uh, an election in Gaza and there were members of Hamas that were voted into office. And then I read, Mm -hmm. well, the political Hamas, that's different than the terrorist Hamas. And then I've read, well, you know, the Palestinian people don't really like Hamas. They don't feel it represents them. And then other people saying, well, don't be ridiculous. The Palestinian people embrace Hamas. You know, why would they be there if the Palestinians didn't embrace them? So help me navigate this. This is very complicated. That's a great question. I think you've reached Ph.D. level really quickly. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So, uh, yes, Hamas was elected. Uh, the question is, who was the opponent? The opponent was uh, the Palestinian Authority that had lost all its credibility. They ran a terrible campaign. They were extraordinarily corrupt. Um, they were kind of buffoons and clowns and just awful. And the only choice, the only alternative was Hamas, who promised good governance, transparency, to clean up the streets, to help the Palestinian people, and to represent them in their national cause, in their aspiration for sovereignty. So they did not run saying, we're going to go kill innocent people. That is not something that Palestinians wanted, and that is not what they stood for. Those who did vote for Hamas were voting against a corrupt uh, old authority that had kind of run its course and ran a lousy campaign, uh, and for a younger 
hopefully better option. Now, what they got may not, you know, may not have been what they were promised. Um, the reality is that Israeli uh, policy and the kind of strangulation of the Gaza Strip and the people of Gaza who have suffered over the last 16 years from this total blockade, um, the majority of whom now living in poverty, many, many young people living there in terrible conditions without education, without decent food, without any option to leave. Keep in mind, they cannot leave this tiny little strip, which is about the size of, uh, of Delaware. It's a tiny area, and they can't even leave this area. They're not allowed out to the Egyptian side or the Israeli side, even before this violence. So we've got a terrible situation here. And, uh, you know, regardless of why Hamas was elected when it was, we can look at the circumstances that they've had to face, and there are not a lot of good options. Now, I'm not trying to justify the attack. There, are, there is no justification for killing innocent people anywhere, ever. Um, what we do need to do is understand the situation that they were in. And you also asked about the everyday uh, Palestinian support for Hamas now. Um, yes, they won the election. Um, that was a long time ago. There hasn't been an election in a very long time. And I think today... It is certainly the case that while there is some support for Hamas, there are also many Palestinians who do not support Hamas, who have nothing to do with Hamas, and who want nothing other than to get on with their lives. As I was saying earlier, um, we often uh, hear a lot about, you know, Palestinians as being, you know, threatening Israelis and suicide attacks and all of this, you know, very violent rhetoric and images and uh, visually you know, frightening images. The reality of like, most Palestinians are just regular people who just want to get on with their lives. They want to have jobs. They want to be with their families. They want to celebrate holidays like we are celebrating here these days. And they want to live in peace and security. So I feel like whoever is going to resolve this conflict down the line is going to have to think about those people rather than thinking about, you know, the more sensationalistic extremists. You said something a couple of minutes ago that um, reflects something I've said, but seems to be a concept too complex for a lot of people to grasp. I think Netanyahu has been a terrible leader before this attack. I think they had a terrible government. They were protesters in the streets because he was trying to right. basically um, bring the Supreme Court to its knees. I think right. um, Hamas in what they did was absolutely evil. And I can hold those two thoughts. Yeah. I can say that I think Netanyahu and his government stinks and that they've done a bad job. I can also say that the attack on October 7th was horrific and reprehensible and disgusting. But I am shocked by how many people don't seem to be able to walk and chew gum when it comes to this situation. Are you surprised by that? No. And, you know, thank you for saying that. I think that it cannot be said enough times the importance of condemning both the extreme, aggressive, violent expansionism of the current Israeli regime and, at the same time, Hamas's horrific attacks on innocent civilians in southern Israel. I don't know why uh, it's so difficult, but my sense is uh, this is a question of what we might call political socialization. 
where Americans have been taught from a very young age to understand American support for Israel as like baseball and apple pie and the 4th of July. Like you just go with it. You don't question it. You just get behind that flag. You just line up. You just you just like steady as she goes. We got to supply Israel with weapons. That's what we do. We're Americans. We're about freedom, democracy. We got to support this Jewish state. We, they've been through hell and back during the Holocaust. We need to be there for them and have their back. Now that narrative is so powerful here that it's very difficult to counter it. In order to get where you just got and say this is a lousy government in Israel, we want nothing to do with it. They're dangerous. They've got to stop what they're doing. We've got to stop supporting them until they stop what they're doing. You really have to challenge that kind of apple pie flag-waving narrative, and that is really hard to do. Believe me, I try to do it every day, And because uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think we need to be able to criticize the Israeli state just like we criticize our own state or the Brazilian state or the German state or the French state or any other state. It's a human institution. It's imperfect. It's flawed. You need to be able to criticize it without being accused of being anti-Semitic. And so that's the challenge that faces us today, and I'm doing all I can to be really crystal clear about that. And I appreciate that you're making that that judgment as well and and, and sort of bringing that over to your listeners. I am, to me, I I don't think it's that complex, but maybe that's because I follow politics maybe more than than the average person, but it just breaks my heart when I Mm. hear people say, well, you know, that the events of October 7th were warranted and they were justified and what did no, Israel no. think was going to happen? And I'm like, no, 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 a thousand times. No, um, right. I, 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 I agree with you. And I think you just put it great. And maybe that's how I'm going to steal that going forward, that I'm anti extremism wherever it's coming from. Thank you yeah. for that. Uh, if you don't have it copyrighted, well, it's going to be my new slogan. <laughs> You can get it on a T-shirt. <laughs> Thank you. We have to uh, wrap this up because we have to get to the news. But Professor Hurd, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and uh, explaining to us exactly the players and, and what's happening. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks to your listeners. Have a good evening. You too. Uh, Professor Hurd is the professor and chair of religious studies and professor of global politics at Northwestern. We're going to take a break for news at the top of the hour. And um, I think we have the lovely uh, David Hochberg when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We are joined by the lovely and talented David Hochberg. David, how was your Thanksgiving? It was outstanding, Joan. Thank you for asking. My wife and I made homemade apple pie, and we absolutely crushed it. Are, no, are you a, a, a woven crust? Are you a crumble? Are you like a regular apple pie or a Dutch apple pie kind of guy? Don't get too specific here, Joan. We made the easiest. The, uh, the recipe was the easiest apple pie on the planet, and <laughs> it was so easy that my wife and I, who aren't bakers, were able to crush it and make it. And uh, we bought an apple coring device, which mm. is awesome. The one it that you like attach apple. to it, the to the island, and you stick the apple on, and you crank it, and it peels it. Yeah, yeah, oh, those so are great. Cool. It, 
it peeled it, it cored it, and it made slices that were perfect. So when I took it off of the mechanism there, I cut it on each side. It was perfectly uniform slices. Whoever came up with that little <laughs> gadget know. should get the Nobel Peace Prize. It's genius. <laughs> I've had one of those things. Uh, I've had one of those things for a while now, and it always it always seems like a miracle when you when you do it. You know, you oh. you, you shove the apple on, and that's how it cores it, and then you put the little thing, and then you just crank, and the peel just goes wildly so awesome. curling away. It's a it's a miracle thing. Yeah. It's so awesome. So, it's what so else cool. did you make? What else did you cook from scratch? Uh, I I ate everything that my wife cooked. That was the only thing that I, I helped her make was that she made a pecan caramel pie, which was mm-hmm. equally delicious. And I, I bought a uh, smoked turkey from my friends over at Chicago Culinary Kitchen, second year in a row. And it was absolutely amazingly delicious. So... Um, that and then the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the <clears throat> and the stuffing and my wife made home homemade uh, cranberry sauce. My wife's becoming a pretty awesome cook. So oh. yeah, I was totally um, smoked of, turkey. One of that's, my favorite eating. That's kind of a bold oh. choice. Forget about it. It is the best turkey. You cut into it. It's so juicy. Like I spilled some of the. Uh, unfortunately, I spilled some of the juice uh from the turkey in my car on my on my mats and i haven't washed it because i love the smell <laughs> of the smoked turkey it's like you walk in it's so good i gotta take it to the car wash but um it's been it's been almost a week and it still smells delicious well i am um, I, I got my a lot of mat. my food from uh sarah stegner over at prairie grass because i wanted oh, to nice. just have fun and it, it was awesome but i think the best turkey i ever had i have a cousin who's a former firefighter and he's the only person i know who's allowed to use one of those fryers you know where yeah. you put the whole bird in and you see all the videos every thanksgiving of all these horrific fires that erupt from these things but uh he's a he's a firefighter so we let him do it and i've got to tell you yeah. that is some Good. really amazing turkey uh, that sounds so. I'm not anything, getting hungry. You know, I'm Italian. Yet. Anything fried is okay by me. Uh, um, um, so good. Anyway, to get back on track, I um, interviewed a few weeks ago. We started a new segment we're going to do with uh, Tony Moray, and it's going to be Ask a Lawyer. But one of the questions that got texted in, and oh, by the way, 773-763-9278, if you want to text in or call in a question for David. Uh, and if you've never done it before, here's an easy way to remember it. 773-763-WCPT. You can use that little text icon on your phone and send me a note, or you can call in. Paul Shavari's back, Shavari's back at the studio, and he will put you through to me and David. But um, one of the questions we got wasn't really a legal question, uh, a woman who identified herself as elderly wanted to talk about reverse mortgages, and she was worried. She said, what are the pitfalls? I'm worried about the pitfalls. Um, and I just saved that question, and I told her that I was going to wait and ask you that question because you're the guy who knows about reverse mortgages. So explain what yeah. it is again, and if there are any things to worry about, anything that you might identify as a pitfall, what would that be? 
Yes. Okay. So reverse mortgages are loans that are the most misunderstood mortgage product in the mortgage industry. It is a loan that enables experienced homeowners uh, of at least 62 years old. One of the borrowers has to be at least 62. So if a 62-year-old is married to a 54-year-old, you could still pull that off and the the qualifying age would be on the younger of the two borrowers. So as long as one of the borrowers is at least 62 years old, you qualify. You also need to have equity in your home in order to in order to qualify for the mortgage. It's based upon a 100-year life expectancy. So the closer you are to 100, the older you are, the more money you'll gain access to. So an 82-year-old will get more than a 72 and a 62-year-old and less than a 92-year-old. Okay, so let's say the equity is $100,000 and somebody's 82. That $100,000 only has to pay for 18 years, whereas opposed if they're 70, then that same amount of equity has to support them for 30 years. Is that right? Correct. Right. So, well, right. Seven, right. Because the closer you are to 80, it's all actuaries, right? I'm not trying to be the grim reaper here, mm-hmm. but we're all going to pass away eventually. And the the actuary tables show that somebody that's 80-something years old has got a greater chance of passing away than somebody that's in their 60s, okay? So that's what they're basing it off of, just, just the age of the mm-hmm. borrower. The only pitfall out there is that there is so much bad information and misinformation about this product, it scares the living bejesus out of a lot of our listeners because they don't understand or comprehend this product. One of the biggest pushbacks we get is, uh, I don't want the government owning my home. Well, if you haven't noticed, the government's got a lot more challenges out there, and owning your home within the Chicago city limits or the Chicago listening area is the last thing the government wants right now. The other thing is is that... um, you know, I'm not going to have any equity. You know, I don't want anybody else owning my home if it's not the government. Well, if you have a mortgage on your home right now, technically you own the home, but somebody else is carrying a note against that home. So until you pay the mortgage off against your home that you have, you know, if you're, if you're thinking and using that logic, you really don't own your home yet either, right? There is an investor, a servicer out there that is loaning you the money based upon a certain period of time and a certain interest rate that you have to pay the money back. It's the same thing with the reverse mortgage. A reverse mortgage is nothing but a mortgage against your home that you have the ability to defer the payments, much like we did during COVID when your home went into forbearance if you took advantage of that. So the best thing that happened to the reverse mortgage market was COVID because now I could explain a, a reverse mortgage to say that, remember during COVID when you put your mortgage into forbearance, which means you didn't make a mortgage payment for a prolonged period of time, uh, and then sometime during COVID or towards the end of COVID, you took your home out of forbearance, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Who owned the house when the, the mortgage was in forbearance? I did. Exactly. The bank didn't own your house. You owned your house. You just deferred the mortgage payments until you and your family got into a much better financial position. Or maybe you just did it as a defensive mode move because you didn't know if you were going to lose time at your job or if you were going to get cut back hours or your industry was going to go bye-bye. So 
once you figured out what you were going to do, you then pulled your house out of forbearance, and then the servicer, the company that you write your mortgage payment to, figured out some type of plan with you and your family to rework the money that you that you've um, deferred, right? Some people, I just talked to a lady today. Uh, she deferred $34,000 of mortgage payments and her servicer, she had an FHA loan, added that to the back of her loan as a second loan without any interest. So if you were in an FHA loan, whatever you deferred is just sitting out there until you either sell your home or refinance your home and then that, that money gets rolled into your new mortgage. So there is nothing wrong with a reverse mortgage. There is nothing to be scared of with a reverse mortgage. Once you understand it and you work with somebody that's, I prefer local, right? Because we mm-hmm. could come out to your home and you can look at the eyeballs and see what's going on or you could call up. You know, we talk about this all the time. Tom Selleck gets paid a lot of money. <laughs> talk about a product he doesn't know anything about except what he reads off the teleprompter and that he'll never use. And you think when you call the 800 number out west, typically in Utah, you're going to talk with Tom Selleck. No, you're going to go into a call center, and they're going to try to just hotbox you into a reverse mortgage. No, we don't do that. So be careful who you work with. Be careful what they tell you. Typically, those those call centers that hire very expensive um actors to be their spokespersons, guess what? They have to pay that that actor a lot of money to promote that product. So two things. I know I'm not as good looking as Tom Selleck. I am not I am not as good of actor as Tom Selleck, but I could tell you this. I know what a reverse mortgage is without reading without having to read it off of a cue card and I'm within half hour to an hour of everybody that's listening to this within the Chicagoland area's home. That, that we could come out and talk to you eyeball to eyeball about this amazing product that is very misunderstood. Um, David, uh, we need to take a break. We have more questions for you. David Hochberg is here to answer your questions, 773-763-9278. Anything to do with um, mortgages, uh, credit scores, Uh, That is what you should be asking us about. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by David Hochberg, and we are asking him some of the questions that I've gotten for him over time. David, you know, we talked about um, reverse mortgage, and you said, you know, um, one of the partners has to be at least, what, 62, you said? 62. It's really 61 and a half because they round, they round the age up to the nearest birthday. Okay. So, um, yeah, so 61 and a half, 62. We're always talking about um, if you're married, if you're married. What if you're not married? <clears throat> um, Ray and I are domestic partners. Do we have yeah. the same rights as a married couple when it yes. comes to mortgages and stuff like that? Absolutely. And, and same-sex couples as well. So it, they, they don't discriminate uh, if you're not married, if, if two people live in the home. Um, it, it would just go off of the, of the um, you know, you don't have to be married to take out a reverse mortgage. And you could be in a uh, same-sex, you know, same-sex what couple, about a regular? same-sex marriage. Can you both be on the yeah. deed for a regular mortgage? Absolutely. Yeah, you don't get discriminated or race 
color, uh, you know, religion, well, fair you, housing laws. For me to get covered under Ray's insurance policy, though, I had to actually submit a document. We like had to download an official government document that we both had to sign and we had to have it notarized. Do you have to? I mean, I can't just walk into your office and say, hey, that that dude over there. Yeah, he and I were doing this thing together. You, do you need some I, sort of I, official documentation? I, I don't know if it's official, but I'm sure there's some type of disclosure in, in the reverse mortgage packet that that lays out, you know, uh, domestic partners, if you will, that that you are both, you know, are fine with it. And just it, it gets out, you know, just to lay out um, who's who and what type of relationship you're in. So uh, I haven't seen the specific document because my reverse mortgage expert, Jose Rodriguez, does all of the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff when it comes down to it. And there's nobody better in the business and knows and forgotten more about reverse mortgages than a lot of people know than the reverse mortgage expert on our team, uh, Jose Rodriguez. So I can find out more about that to get to a specific answer. No, uh, just, I was just curious because we always talk in terms of um, married couples, and some of us yeah. are not. No, and, and again, it's fair housing laws. You can't get discriminated against for any of that, you know, okay. color, race, religion. Um, you know, if you're straight or gay, if you're married to a man and you're a man, does all of that stuff. You know, it just you, domestic partners you can't be discriminated against. The other question I have, you mentioned a moment ago that there's one gentleman that you work with when it comes to reverse mortgages because you know them, you know they're good. A lot of people yeah. have a checking account. Some still have savings accounts, but a lot of people will have a checking account maybe at their local bank, and maybe they've gotten to know those people. When, um, how do you know, like say somebody wants a reverse mortgage or they want one of those um, HELOCs, um, yeah. should every bank be able to do that? Um, how do you know if your bank is competent when it comes to that stuff, because I think most people, especially if they have a local bank they go to and they start to get to know the people there, that would be the first place they'd be likely to go to at least talk about some of this stuff. Sure, sure. But, you know, when you're when you're trying to buy porterhouse steak, you don't go to the guy or gal in the fruit section to ask them, you know, what steak they would buy when when you're talking about tomatoes. Right. And their expertise is selling tomatoes and, and cantaloupes as opposed to prime bread steak. So going to your local bank is great. A lot of local banks nowadays, Chase and Wells Fargo, I know they're not local banks, but they have branches within a lot of our listeners' uh, neighborhoods that they're in. They don't offer a home equity line of credits. Uh, they got out of that business. Chase got out of that business years ago, and so did Wells. You know, we really? sent all of our – all of yeah, they, they just didn't want – the risk of of that type of product, so they eliminated it. Unless you're a private banker, which means you've got a lot, of, you know, uh, money with them with with at least three commas, um, you know, millions of dollars invested in the private banking sector. They won't uh, provide HELOCs to the general public, just to their private banking customers. So, if you're looking to get a HELOC, and there's nothing wrong with the HELOC, I love HELOCs. I, I promote them. I just talked to a guy before you called about converting his $80,000 mortgage into a HELOC because he was looking to get out of his, his Wait home. Wait a minute. Maybe I used the word home. wrong. Is it, isn't a HELOC like a line of credit? 
Yeah, home equity line of credit is so a lot of banks. Is it know, different check, from a mortgage? Your, well, it's a second mortgage against your home. It's a second lien, so it is a mortgage, right? There are two types of uh, home equity products. There's a home equity loan, and a home equity line of credit. Home equity loan is a fixed rate product, where when you close, you get your whatever the amount of your loan was twenty, thirty, forty, a hundred thousand dollars based upon a set interest rate over a set period of time that you have to pay it back and the payment doesn't change. A home equity line of credit is a checkbook against your home. It's kind of like an accordion, right? You can you can uh, take it out for as much as you qualify for and you only pay the um, you only pay the interest on the amount of money that you take out, right? So you could take out an accordion, right? An accordion when you open it up, it, it it's arm's length, but you know, you're taking out a big accordion when it's open. It, it it covers both of your arms. But if you don't need any of the money when you close, it's like a closed accordion, right? It's just it's very small and compact, and you know you're not taking any money out. But then when you need it, you open up the accordion and you just start writing checks against it for whatever you need. This mm-hmm. guy in particular, he owned a four hundred thousand dollar property. He was thinking he owed eighty thousand dollars on his mortgage, and he wanted to buy a home. Um, he wanted to keep his current home as a as an investment property. It's a four unit building, so he wanted to pull out the equity out of his four unit building to put down on on a on a new single family house he wanted to buy. So we're in the process of helping him secure a line of credit. I'm checking to see what the limits are on a four unit owner occupied property, how much he could borrow, and then he'll use all of the equity as much as he can to qualify for to pull it out of his current home. That he lives in one of the units, so it's an owner-occupied four-unit building. He wants a single-family house. He's 67. He wants to retire and use the four-unit as part of his retirement portfolio, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to look to take out a line of credit against all of the equity, as much of the equity in his four-unit that we, we can that he's been living in for 19 years. So he could put a large down payment on the single-family house that he wants to buy in town so he could keep an eye on his investment. I I see. I see. Because I know I just recently, fairly recently, completed the paperwork to do a line of credit because you convinced me that as long as you had the qualifications to get one, that it was important as an emergency fund, as a as a rainy day fund. Not that, you know, I'm not going to write one of those checks and head to Vegas um, but, you know, God forbid something terrible happened and we would suddenly need um, more cash than we have on hand to pay for it. It's a it's a just for peace of mind kind of, isn't it? It's an emergency shoot. I mean, you've got a ton of equity. I just read something today. Forty percent of Ameri- of homeowners in the United States own their home free and clear which is an amazing number, right? Congratulations to the 40% that owns your home free and clear. You're sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equity uh, in your home. And when you have an emergency and you go to get it, typically you're in a panic mode because you lost your job, you got injured on the job, your income's cut, you had a family member that needed a quick you know, money real fast, and you can't get to it, right? So the best time to secure a line of credit is when you don't need a line of credit, uh, so it's there when you never thought you needed it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the best thing that I recommend everybody, especially if you own your home free and clear, is to secure the largest line of credit that you qualify for, 
and take care of it as soon as humanly possible while while you're working, while your credit's still good, while you're not under pressure and you're not all stressed out. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm talking to David Hochberg. I know that we have some callers who are uh, waiting to ask David a question. We need to take a quick break. But before we do, I want to give that phone number out once again. 773-763-9278. If you've never called in before, think of it like this way. 773-763-WCPT. You can call me. You can text me. We'll uh, get your questions started right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. David Hochberg is here, and he always very graciously takes your calls and answers your questions. Let's go to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago with a question for you, David. Go ahead, Ron. You're on with me and David Hochberg. Uh, yes, uh... If uh, I have a large uh, credit card balances and uh, I'm thinking about buying a house, how will that affect my uh, getting a mortgage? Would I have to make a bigger down payments, or how will that uh, work out? Do you currently own a um, Do you currently no. own a house now, Ron? No, no, no I don't. No, um, no. All right. How much of a down payment do you have for a new house? Um, fifty thousand. 50000 How much credit card debt are you in? Uh, about uh, 20000 20000 How much of a home are you looking to buy? Uh, the price range? Yeah. Um, um, and I'd say uh, 150000 around that area, if there was anything like that. Okay. So you've got $20,000 with the credit card debt, $50,000 in the bank, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, and that $20,000 with the credit card debt, I'm guessing, is is probably costing you on a monthly basis to carry the minimums between four and $600 a month. Would that be, would I be close? Oh, yeah, yeah, more than that, yeah, maybe close. Okay, good, so about 800 bucks a month, right? Yeah, great, right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that $20,000 with the credit card debt <clears throat> that you're carrying and which is putting pressure on your credit scores is the equivalent of a $100,000 mortgage payment. So if I, my recommendation to you would be as soon as you hang up this call is to take $20,000 from the $50,000 that you got sitting there, pay off all of your credit card debt, which will immediately improve your credit scores and enable you to qualify for a $100,000 mortgage because the debt will be gone. And your credit scores will shoot up and you'll get a better rate. That's what I would strongly advise you to do as soon as you hang up from this call. All right. Well, I'll, well, I'll do that. I'll do that right <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Phil is calling in from the north side with a question about property tax rebates. Phil, go ahead. You're on with David Hochberg. Hello, Joan. Uh, I just wanted to say, Joan, I always forget my father, who's gone now, had the biggest crush on you back in the day when uh, you did the local news in Chicago. He used, we used to have a few beers once in a while at a place, <laughs> and, and you were the choice of local news for the place. And when you came on, he would get this glazed look in his face, and he would, just, <laughs> and he would say in, in the kind of slurry voice, what a doll is she, you know? It was very comical. But well, I, so I just wanted to tell you that. I wish he were still around. <laughs> I'd give him a big hug. Yeah, he, he really did love you. Um, 
So uh, I do. I have the the property tax is a pretty simple question. I tried to look into it online, and from what I found, they're saying it's going to be uh, reinstated this year. The the rebates. It, does David know about that? And I also had one other issue. If I hit, if you have time, I'd like to just bring up. Sure. But let's what about let's the start with taxes? the. Yeah, what county are you in? I'm in Cook. Yeah, I don't know what rebates that you're. I don't know what what rebate that you're referring to in particular. So I would reach out to the uh, treasurer's office well, to see. Treasurer. Um, yeah, Maria Pappas has got a great website, uh, and she and her okay. and her team is very responsive. Unlike the other county offices that we have here. They, they are because I, I have called them before. I can attest to that. Okay. Yeah, she's um, phenomenal. The, yeah, she's doing a great job. Uh, the other, this is a little more controversial, but I have heard you talk uh, one time with Tor- Tory Ryder and uh, regarding um, uh, Biden. And uh, there's a the the I don't know the exact though or whatever. The, and it, a branch of his administration raised the interest rates on people with good credit in order to compensate for people with bad credit. Yeah, that wasn't President yeah. Biden. That was that was the um, that was the head of the Federal Housing Finance Authority. Excellent. It, she, yes, that's what I wanted yeah, to clear. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I wanted to clear because no, you no. sounded really angry about it, and you kind of blame Biden for it. It is a branch of government. I did that not blame really Biden for not... it. No, no. Okay, no, good. I, sir, you sounded a little sir, angry. I did not blame. Well, I'm angry because I'm going to go to no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. Maybe a little bit. Hold on, hold on. Well, let me explain. <laughs> I'm angry because the change that she made made no sense. Okay, she she made a change because she that. said that it doesn't make any sense. You're penalizing those that have got great credit, and and you're charging them more, no matter what spin that she, I can't think of her name Thompson, uh, Miss yeah, Thompson. It, it I almost, can't think of her. It, it's not the right thing, in my professional opinion. Hang on. you got to let me finish yeah. my conference. My, my response. I'm sorry. I'm in, sorry. My, in, my, in my professional opinion, the originating loans for 23 years and seeing a lot of crazy things that the Federal Housing Finance Authority and FHA have done over those past 20, 23 years, one of the one of the miss, miss uh, well, I don't want to say dumb, but it's the only thing that qualifies to explain what she did. It's one of the dumbest things that she's done is to increase the cost of doing loans for those borrowers with 680 credit scores and higher and reduce the cost of doing loans for for those borrowers with credit scores of 680 and lower, all all under the guise of equality. I could show you just as many uh, people, uh, borrowers of color and, and, and with great credit as I could show you with horrible credit. I could show you white people that have great credit just as much as I could show you white people that have horrible credit. It's got David, nothing to do with the, the color of your skin. Is the idea supposed to be that it's um, it's uh, doing that is a helping hand for poor people that isn't going to cost anything because wealthier people are going to pick up the tab? Is that what's the thinking behind it? Wealthy people, Joan, all because you're wealthy doesn't mean you have good credit. I could show you just as many credit-challenged 
borrowers with money, as they can show you with with credit challenge borrowers with no money. Hmm. What what this was was My a complete. Opinion. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. My opinion is it was a misguided attempt at affirmative action in the, the world of finance. It, and it I agree with you 100 percent. Okay, the thing is, and the only thing I want to just say real quick, and I'll be out of here. You can both get rid of me. But uh, uh, some guy called in that you responded to, and he was angry, right-winger guy. He sounded like a troll to me. And it is a talking point, though, a right-wing talking point, as if Biden, you know, um, got a think tank together. How can we punish people with good credit? And, and you know, kind of that, that um, you know what I'm, I'm saying? Kind of like a troll. I know exactly like a, what you're saying. Slamming, it was all, it was all over Fox Biden. News. It was, it's not his, he, it's not a branch of government he has direct oversight over. His, my, he, well, my well, he appointed Sandra Thompson. That's the lady's name, Sandra L. Thompson, okay. as the head of the FHFA. And Sandra L. Thompson came out with that misguided new rule, which penalizes borrowers with good credit and rewards borrowers with, with less than okay. good credit. Okay, you so could have done a, what you for, wanted to enacted. do. It's not just a proposal. It is the law of the oh, land. No, no, no. They put, this, they put this into play a year and a half ago and absolutely crushed. Um, it, and, they, and they added tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, over the cost of a loan for borrowers with good credit while re- relieving, while giving borrowers with less than seller credit relief. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, my, and anybody that wants op- to say that, go ahead. My opinion is, I, I mean, as though you can't fully exonerate Biden, he is respons- responsible for appointing her. Again, it, it, you can't, you, you also cannot fully demonize him for it either. That's all I, I kind of. I didn't do, and then again, I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do either. So I just came out I, I, and I, I said when, mm-hmm. when the rule was announced, cool with it. it was a horrible rule and it was a misguided rule, misplaced rule, and it's costing borrowers with good credit, no matter what color skin they have or what nationality they are, where they're born tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in mortgage payments over the life of their loan. That's a fact. So <laughs> I'll be more than happy. You I could, can agree with that. You could call well, it because it's a fact, and you could bring Sandra L. Yeah, Thompson I, on here to talk about it. The only thing I'm trying to bring awareness to is that I, I marinate in this stuff, and it, this has been a recurring talking point from right-wing trolls to slam Biden with is if he was directly responsible for making this, you know. Uh, Phil, that's, that's something I hadn't heard about. And just just so we're clear, because the host is a, still a little confused, this was suggested, huh? but then it was shot down. So this is not, has no, not put, no, put into no, effect. No, 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 no. This was put into play by Sandra L. Thompson and FHFA about a year, a little over a year ago. So interest rates shot up for borrowers with credit scores above 680 to buy homes. I called. I called my congressman. I talked to Congressman um, Quigley. I talked to the congressman uh, up in my district up here. I forgot his name in the 10th. 
uh, begins with an S. I forgot his name, but I called Mike because I'm friends with Mike Quigley, uh, Congressman. Brad Quigley. Schneider, I and think he's he, your congressman, isn't uh, he? Schneider, Schneider. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah I Schneider actually, was my I, congressman. I worked for Brad. It's a horrible rule. It's a horrible rule. It is a horrible rule. So. All right. We've all decided this is a horrible rule. And while we contemplate that, we are going to take a break. We've got some more calls. We're going to try to get to everybody who's on the phone line. So sit tight. David Hochberg and I will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by, excuse me, David Hochberg, who is taking your questions about mortgages and uh, credit, et cetera, and so forth. Let's go to Romeoville. Dan is calling in. And has questions for you, David. Dan, go ahead. Hi, Joan. Hi, David. Um, hey, I have a, uh, I have a question. Um, uh, I own my home outright. I don't have a mortgage. Uh, it's worth about three hundred and thirty thousand, I believe. Uh, what how, about how much would I get if I got a reverse mortgage every month? How old are you? I'll be 65 in February. Are you are you alone on the mortgage? Or is there a co-borrower with you? Uh, I don't have a mortgage. It's it's paid for. No, no spouse, yeah. spouse or, or partner living. Oh with yeah, you. yeah. There... My spouse is yeah. My spouse is six. How old is she? He, he, he or 60. she is sixty years old. Okay, so yeah. based upon today's market, we would go off of the spouse's age because the spouse is younger than you. Right, you're married, okay, and you would qualify, okay, because you're 65. You'd get about right 40 ballparking it about 40 percent of the value of your home. Okay, and that would be like a lump again, there are a lot of variables. A, going. Um, I think, since um, you didn't have a mortgage, well, hang on. Since you didn't have a mortgage, right? I recommend doing a line of credit. It's called a Heckam Home Equity Conversion Mortgage. You okay. can look it up. H E CM, it's called HECM. Mm-hmm. Um, you would call HECM. Since you don't have a mortgage on your home, in order to right. protect the viability of the program, FHA, because it's an FHA program, it's insured by the Federal Housing Administration, they will allow you to uh-huh. take out 60% of whatever you qualify for during the first year because you don't have a mortgage. Okay. Okay. So you could take out, and then the remainder of whatever you qualify for, you could take out the rest of its entirety on the 366th day that you're in the loan. Those changes came down after the mortgage meltdown in 08 through 10, and FHA was upside down by billions of dollars because of the collapse in the housing market. So, um, again, we could dive deeper into that if you'd like. Yeah. My biggest concern is the, are the property taxes after I no longer work, and I'm just trying uh, they to should think be of a way to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not yeah. from uh, here you, originally, but it's pretty shocking. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here you could elect leaders that want to develop the area that bring in a larger tax base, so the real estate taxes don't continue to go up. That's a whole other story I in see. another show oh, yeah. because we don't have enough right. time to talk about the incompetence of our leadership here. But, you know, yeah, we, we need to expand the tax base in order to keep real estate taxes down. 
So what you could do is you could, this does enable you to access the equity of your home during retirement to take care of things mm-hmm. like real estate taxes, take care of things like uh, homeowner's insurance, upkeep around the home to make it safer and more comfortable for mm-hmm. you to live in that home, uh, to bring in in-home health care, to pay for meds, maybe hire a snow right. removal company because you don't want to be out there in the snow and the ice and mm-hmm. fall and break your hip or break anything. It doesn't heal that well, uh, you know, it, as you get older. So right. that's the reason for this, okay? It just gives you extra. And then another thing, Another one of the major benefits is it enables those that do have retirement uh, savings to uh, not touch the retirement savings and use the equity out of your home so your retirement savings can continue to grow so you can tap them at a larger amount at a later date. Many benefits, many, many benefits. All right. Well, thank you, Joan. Thank you, David. Thank you for the call. Thank you. I appreciate that. Great question. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Steve's calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, you're on with me and David Hochberg. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I was wondering if your guest could address this issue about uh, a sort of imbalance in the housing market that was creative. Out of, out of you know, a sense of what we should have done during COVID, uh, this notion, look, we're going to bring down interest rates. So, you know, a lot of people went out there and said, great, you know, rates, uh, 30-year rates at 28 2.9%, 3%, great, going to buy a home. And now they've skyrocketed, and it's brought the housing market to a screeching halt. And the question then becomes, uh, are a lot of people ever going to want to get out of their homes and move to a second home, uh, you know, a bigger home? Because they're never going to be able to get that rate that they've locked in during COVID, and then they're just going to be stuck there, uh, never wanting to sort of swap out a home, as was the American tradition. So uh, my question is, how how will this affect us in the long term? Because I, I just don't see a lot of people wanting to, to move to the, the next home, to the second or third home? Well, I, th- I think what you're going to find is is that uh, it's a great question. Seventy percent of the United States homeowners that have a mortgage have a rate under five, right? Uh, more than 50 percent of those homeowners have rates under four, and 25 percent of those homeowners have rates under three. So until the rates start coming down, and we have seen a retraction in the rates just in the past month, all right? We've seen a full three-quarters of a point, almost a full point decrease in, in the 30-year fix. We were close to eight. Now we're closer to six, and that's just happened in the past 30 days, which is a little bit of a reprieve. So to answer your question, are those homeowners in the twos ever going to move? Uh, yeah. Uh, people die. People get divorced. People want to retire and leave Illinois for warmer weather and lower taxes. People... Um, uh, have financial challenges and can't afford their homes anymore and need to downsize and get into something less expensive. And families are moving back in together in order to save money, so they need a bigger home. And those are the five major reasons that uh, people are moving right now, that listeners are moving right now. Do I still think that people are just going to stay uh, anchored down in their home? No. I think there's going to come a time where we're going to get back into the 30-year fixed into the fives, and you'll see adjustable rate mortgages in the fours. And that will, and what's happening is there is a lack of inventory, and um, those homeowners in the twos and the threes will then have a product, an adjustable rate mortgage that they'll be able to go into with all of the equity that they've picked up because there is a supply shortage and use the added equity that they've made with a slightly higher interest rate and be able to justify 
a slightly higher payment. Might go to a lower tax even state, even though your interest rate is higher. Your your real estate taxes are substantially lower, which will enable you to qualify for a similar payment. Right, the state of Illinois with the real estate taxes is absolutely a seller that that's completely drunk, and we keep feeding the <laughs> seller uh, alcohol, and nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. So, you know, I, I do think that some of the listeners out there will stay in their homes longer than expected, but I also know that. I've got a couple of guys working for me right now. They've got three kids living in a 1,200-square-foot house, and they're out of room, and they're going to have to move just because, you know, this isn't 1847, and we're not living out of the back of a wagon, okay? People need, you know, more room and more space in their homes, and, you know, eventually more housing stock will come on the market, and, and there'll be an equilibrium in, um, in uh, housing stock, and, and that's the biggest problem is is the supply side. And when these more properties, when more of these big gigantic malls get dropped down, and all of that space at the malls that nobody's going to gets reconverted and reconstituted into townhouse communities and condo communities, and that inventory comes on the market, there'll be more more inventory, and the prices will stabilize, and more people will be able to buy homes. Yeah, you, you actually That's touched on the, the second part of, of what I wanted to, to discuss, and that, and that was yeah, usually in a market where you see rising interest rates, you see uh, home prices adjust. But you know now we're living in a time where you've got high interest rates historically, given what we were used to in the last 25 years, and then you've also got sky high property values, and you know neither one of them have budged much. You know usually it's one or the other that will move. But right now, I think you've got a lot right. of people just sitting on the sidelines waiting for the prices to come down or the interest rates to come down. Well, well, and the challenge with that is if you waited in 19 for the prices to come down in 20, you missed the boat. If you waited in 20 for the prices to come down in 21, you missed the boat. If you waited in 22 for the prices to come down in 23, you missed the boat. In 23, you know, you can wait for 24. I don't know where that boat's going to be, right? I think that you got to wait. I, I think you're going to miss the boat. And if you buy today at a higher at a higher interest rate and the rates go down, you're going to refinance into a lower rate anyway. I think what happened was during COVID, everybody had hit the panic button, right? They dropped the rates too low. You can't go back and change it. It happened. People got money, PPP money, that they didn't need and didn't give back. Why would you give it back, right? The government just dropped millions of dollars, hundreds thousands of dollars into your bank account, right? You had workers that were continuing to work but got PPP money or got stimulus money, I forgot what it's called, dropped into their account. That's why we have record out, you know, inflation, not record, but rampant inflation because we pumped trillions of dollars into our system. So we, we did a lot of things wrong during the past three years, and we're paying for it during the past two years, right? We had to flood the field with with funds in order to keep the economy going during COVID. And there was no clawbacks for for those listeners and business owners that got the money that didn't need the money, right? So, you know, you've got people, and I'm not blaming them, right? The government is doling out money, and you go get your money, great. All I know is I didn't get any money, okay? And I know the hundreds of thousands of people that didn't get any money either. But the money that everybody got, people spent it on stuff that they didn't need, and, and blew it and kept the economy going. Now we've got record 
uh, credit utilizations at 70% on their credit cards, which means the credit card balances are, are nearing 07, 08 levels, which is scary as hell. We're higher on our credit card balances as a country than we were at any time in history. We, we've added $48 billion of credit card debt in the past quarter, and that doesn't even include um, taking into account people living off their credit cards after the student loan payments hit. So we're, we're not looking real rosy right now in terms of an overall forecast. There's a credit crunch coming, and you got people out there spending money that they don't have on crap that they don't need, buying it for people that they don't care about for the holidays. And come January, you're going to wake up, and we're going to be in a world of hurt. So happy holidays, everybody. That's my uh, <laughs> Thanks for the call, Steve. My, uh, um, we have some texts that we're going to try to get to now. Uh, somebody wants to know, David, how is the credit score formulated? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So it has to do with the amount of credit that you have, the length of credit that uh, that you've had the credit open, right? So if you had a credit card opened when you graduated college in the 80s like I did and you've had it for the past 30, 40 years, that's a good trade line. Right. Um, if you make your payments on time, that is a good indicator of a of hist of a um, of of a good payment history. You've proven over time that you're a good boy and good girl, and you've paid and you've paid your bills on time. And the amount of debt you carry on your credit cards, like I just said, the United States consumers, we are at seventy percent capacity on our credit cards, which is scary as heck. Which means if you had a thousand dollar limit on your credit cards and you have a $700 balance, you're at 70%. That's not good. So if you keep your balances low on your credit cards, we've talked about nauseam on the show and others I'm on, pay your credit cards off every time, every Friday if you can, chip away at it every time you get paid. So it's got to do with your payment history, the type of credit that you have. They want a mix. Is it installment credit like a car loan, a car lease? Is it uh, credit card debt like um, like Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover? Is it a student loan, um, installment loan like that? Is it a mortgage? Um, those are the types. So it's got to do with the mix. It has to do with the credit utilization, how much credit you carry against that debt, the length of time you've had it out, and your payment history are the four major building blocks to your credit scores. Um, David, I have a quick question about that. You've said before that the quickest way to build your credit is instead of waiting to pay your credit cards off once a month, uh, pay them off every week. I just recently was re redoing some of the information, uh, the banking information and other stuff that had to do with one of my credit cards. And I noticed for the first time there was a button that gave me the option. It's like, do you want to pay this off once a month or would you like to yep. us to pay this every two weeks? And I clicked, oh, yep. every two weeks, because that way I get the extra payment, but I don't have to remember to do it every month. Is that going to help my credit score? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you're paying your credit card. Well, well you've got ridiculously great credit already. So it's going to further impact your 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 credit scores. I've got a, a Costco Visa card, right? Because I opened it because I had to use it. I wanted to use a credit card at Costco, and you got to use a Visa instead of an American Express. So I opened it. I set it up bi-monthly pay, bi-weekly. It gets paid twice a week. It gets paid twice a month. 
on the 15th and the 30th. So whatever we've got on that credit card, I get a, I get an alert. Hey, don't forget your payments coming due tomorrow. We're going to, we're going to make the payment and take it out of the checking account. I got hooked up to the account. So yeah, those type of, uh, if you can, all right, uh, a lot of our listeners are carrying credit card debt, Joan, that can't do that. So for those that can make the payment, do that. Pay it in full if you can. Those that can't, when you get paid, go online and make a payment. Just pay something. Start chipping away at that iceberg. I guarantee you it will help you in the long run and your credit scores, improve your credit profile, and thus your credit scores. And unless you're buying a home, thanks to Ms. Thompson at FHA, FHFA, you know, it, it, it would have helped you uh, get a much lower rate, but she completely screwed everybody over about a year ago. So, yeah, uh, you know, to digress to the earlier call. Um, well, um, for those of you who, who are waiting on the phone lines or who sent me a text, I am uh, I'm going to do um, a, a Word document and start writing down your questions. So when we have David back, which will be sooner rather than later, uh, maybe you could come back in a couple of weeks because we've got more calls and more texts that we weren't able to get yeah. to, David. That's great. And I appreciate it. Or you could just write them down and send me the texters and I'll call the texters or whatever. Or the texters could just call me at uh, 855-56-David, 56david.com. You could send me an email at david at 56david. I answer all the emails and all the calls. And so, you know, okay. that's the easiest way. If your listeners want to reach out to me, I'll, I'll get back to every single one of them. All right. Sounds good. David, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm glad you had a great Thanksgiving. Have a great holiday season if I don't get you back on the radio before it uh, takes place. Oh, you'll get me back. You'll get me back, Joe. Don't, 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 <laughs> don't kid I yourself. <laughs> I, I know where you live, and I'll be back before okay. the end of the year. You have a great, you have a great, uh, great rest of your day. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, David. We're going to break for news and be back with uh, the talented Rex Hupke after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. No post-holiday show would be complete without a visit with one of our famous USA Today columnist, Rex Hupke, who joins us. How are you, Rex? No, I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Joan? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing good. And I, I would like to say that I'm very glad that you are utilizing threads to the best of your ability, because I am really working very, very hard to wean myself completely off of X. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is a process because some of the features that especially people who do shows like this or journalists, you know, breaking news and other stuff and sound clips. Um, X still has. Uh, a lot of that that's very useful, but Threads is getting there, baby. Yeah, I hope it. I hope it does. I, I agree. I, I would like to um, exit. I'm, I'm a little. I, a lot. I've heard a lot of people say this. I'm slightly torn because part of me feels like staying and fighting, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but the other part of me is like, oh lord, this is just a cess. I mean, it's it's all, Twitter's always been a bit of a cesspool, but now it's just overrun. And and I have, in fact. Uh, beyond just the uh, trolls and the anti-Semites and horrible people that have become amplified on there. I've also noticed a, a pretty strong change in the amount of engagement. Uh, for example, I tweet something, 
where I put a link to one of my columns, it's not getting near the uh, sort of engagement that it used to. Uh, they definitely did something with the algorithm on there. If you, you know, if you're not paying for, so you don't think it's just those. people leaving X that that maybe there. I think it's, I think it's a combination. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's, yeah, I think that's part of it. But I think there's also just been. I've heard this from a lot of other people I know. Well, from what uh, I've well, read, didn't just, they alter the algorithm specifically yeah. to suit Elon's tastes? That yeah. organizations so, and groups and people he liked were right. elevated and made exactly. so that they would be up um, more frequently and amplified more. <clears throat> exactly, and and so I mean, to me, the value of Twitter was always it was at least for a while there, with all of its faults, it was the primary place to be on the very edge of what's happening, you know, news mm-hmm. wise, every, everything would break there. Everything, you know, it was, it was an excellent source for that sort of thing for unfolding stories and not so much anymore. <laughs> it's definitely. It's, yeah. And I don't know why, I don't know the logistics or the technical side of things, but again, I'm not alone in this. I, I, it's just not as effective of a tool for a journalist anymore. And, and you take that away um, and the value of the whole platform at least for me, is dramatically decreased. So, yeah, it's a weird, yeah, I mean, I want to just sort of quit and protest, uh, but there's also a little bit of me that wants to fight for something that I've, you know, been on there for a long time. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. You know, you would have been one of those people on the Titanic that would have run around saying, you know, it's just a little bit of ice. We can do this, people. Let's all move to the end of the boat. We're going to counter the weight of the water coming in. We can do this, people. This is a pretty nice boat at the end of the day, guys. Let's not just give up on it. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, but that's a little bit about about what it sounds like. Well, you know, the one thing, I don't do this anymore, but for a long time, One of the tabs, I have a big monitor that I keep a lot of stuff on, and one of the tabs that I always had active was Twitter because Twitter uh, was usually about two hours ahead of the mainstream media if somebody really high-profile died. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. It would always be your first indication, and then I would sometimes see something like that, and I'd go to, like, the main page of the Washington Post or someplace like that, and by my estimate, it usually took the mainstream media, even on Twitter, like two hours to pick up the story and and confirm it and, and, and run with it, but... You know, I have found in I don't do that anymore because there's no more of that. You know, I can't find that kind of breaking news on Twitter anymore. It's exactly. Yeah. Nobody's posting those kinds of things there. I'm not sure where that kind of breaking news is being posted, um, but it sure isn't on Twitter anymore. I agreed. Yeah, it's uh, and that's for us, at least for, you know, for stuff we do. That's a big loss. The um, Mm -hmm. But and yeah, when, I, just to I, be I clear to the audience, when you say engagement, he's talking about like if he links to one of his articles and people click on it and they open up the article and they read it, that's engagement. Or uh, if he makes a post and you comment on it, not necessarily just reposting it, but if you actually um, want to tell uh, Rex Hupke, you know, what a what a twink he is, that is engagement. And I imagine you get a lot of that. <laughs> Oh yeah, We've always I, I have talked been about routinely the, engaged. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, in your bio for threads, it says receiver of a your uh, idiot emails. No, but yeah. I would imagine you get your uh, idiot on threads as well. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know what? I haven't. There's that is one thing I'll say that with threads and, and blue sky also. I, so far, the, it has been largely troll free. I'm sure it'll get there, but uh, everything evolves. <laughs> blue sky, by the way, is another social media platform. But correct me if I'm wrong. I'm on it. But you still have to be invited, don't you? You can't just say, oh, I think I'll sign up for Blue Sky today. You have to, like, right. know yeah. somebody who's on Blue Sky, and they almost kind of have to vouch for you and send yeah. a link yeah. that you can then use to get on the site. I, I did it. Phil Rosenthal was sweet enough to send me a link, but I never I never use it. I think that because I think that while that <clears throat> that kind of curation maybe keeps it a more civil site, maybe a safer site, it also kind of limits it. It sure does. Yeah, absolutely. That's And that's the, you know, the problem is that Twitter remains, you know, many orders of magnitude larger in terms of reach than any of these other places. So it's simply, it's going to take uh, a lot more people leaving Twitter, I refuse to call it X. I just call it Twitter still. Uh, you know, a lot more people leaving Twitter and then obviously a lot more people getting on, you know, threads or whatever the thing may be. But in the meantime, it's pretty hard because you can't really <laughs> you can't really be constantly managing, you know, four or five social media profiles. <laughs> you gotta mm-hmm. have, to have some time to look. Some time to live mixed in there and work and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, so it's, the whole thing is a mess. And thanks to Mr. Elon uh, for just absolutely messing everything up. Yeah, including his own uh, pocketbook. Um, oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. I think some people were hopeful when he brought on uh, Linda, I don't know how you say her name, Yaccarino, um, mm. Who was um, supposed to be the one that was going to make nice with all the advertisers and convince them that Twitter was a great, sorry, X was a great place for them to be. And um, and I think for a while people gave it a shot. But now I'm reading over and over again about all these major corporations that are leaving because they're finding that there are are posts are being placed next to, you know, Nazi uh, posts and and, you know, I mean, she's got to be that woman has to be ruining the day. She said, hey, what could possibly go wrong? This is a great gig, right? I got nowhere to go but up. Yeah, I don't know how somebody does that and continues to do that without feeling their soul leave their body on a regular mm-hmm. basis. I mean, because, yeah, it's hard to convince advertisers that everything's going great when you're born. When your boss is is agreeing with anti-Semitic tropes, and uh, I think today he posted something about the the PizzaGate conspiracy theory, which oh. I you know that's like a that's like retro conspiracy theories at that point. I haven't even heard of that for a while, but uh, uh, you know some nutty child trafficking garbage that got somebody shot at a pizza place in Washington D.C. So, uh, and I think the Washington Post responded to that by saying that they're leaving. Uh, yeah. X now also. And I so think anyway. NPR, didn't NPR, re- I think what NPR before, yeah. said was that they weren't necessarily going to take down their account, but they were no longer going to add to it. They were no longer going to add Correct. posts to it. Yeah. Yeah. And they did that after he, uh, uh, I think he took away uh, their verification and I just all kinds of, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's just bananas. I tell you. <laughs> 
And, you know, what we're talking again about about blue sky and how you have to be invited. It reminds me of and I, you know, I can't remember the name of this, but there's an online dating, I guess, app. I don't know. And it's only for celebrities so that if you're famous, you don't have to worry about like regular people reaching out to you. Only other famous <laughs> people like like only, you know, you're only going to get message from Selena Gomez or somebody like that. Um, and I can't remember the name of it. Clearly, no one has ever invited me uh, yeah, to be they? a part of it. You know, not that I would. Ray, are you listening? I never would do that to you, yes. Ray. Never. I don't care how famous they are. But it's like some it's got a name and and it's I've read a couple of articles about it, about how there's this like secret dating site. But you have to be invited because you have to be somebody, somebody to be on the site. So God forbid other nobodies connect with you. Yes, we can't be associating with the the hoi polloi or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yikes. Well, we've. Um, I want to talk to you. We need to take a break. But when we come back, we are going to be talking uh, to Mr. Hupke. Uh, he posted an awful lot of stuff about Thanksgiving, um, how to get through it, what was important, how to handle your your MAGA relatives. We want Rex to talk about that when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, you know how President Biden has reacted to his critics in part by, on actually social media, creating the Dark Brandon account where he uses his foes' words against them. Rex Hupke, when it comes to the holidays, is kind of doing a dark Rex kind of account Uh, Thanksgiving and the upcoming holiday season seen through a surprisingly dark lens. Um, Happy Thanksgiving. You're doing it wrong. Forget the holidays. It's not about families. It's about gifts. Um, Wanting to know the truth behind Joe Biden's Thanksgiving turkey pardons. Shall I go on, Rex? Shall I go on? (laughs) Um, Or my favorite, how to avoid talking politics, consider a no MAGA allowed sign. Okay. Okay, Mr. Glass Half Empty, what's going on with you? Well, and I will point out this applies really to any holiday, including upcoming ones as well, now that we're past Thanksgiving. But, uh, yeah, I just uh, just figured I'd... You know what? Let's just get brutally honest out here, folks, and let's not uh, let's not dance around the whole uh, wanting to be with family uh, stuff because we know darn well that politics are going to get in the way of it. And you know, so let's just uh, you know, you got to plan, you got to plan, right? So if you don't want those MAGA folks there, you put up a no MAGA allowed sign, and you know, with MAGA, if you don't want the you know non MAGA folks, then you can do your own sign too. But uh, you know, we got to. We got to be in separate rooms at this point. <laughs> well, you know, I I sign on. I sign on to that. Uh, sadly, um, members of my family take a much more <laughs> soft. They would call it kindness. I just say they're soft kind of point of view because we have within our family circle a couple of elderly Fox cable watching folks who have a tendency to regurgitate. 
Fox talking points and the rest of my family. I'm like, next time I'm sitting next to him, you know, because they are so nice. They just changed the subject, you know, and I'm like, you got to engage. Don't you understand this? How will how will they ever get better if you don't explain to them how wrong they are? No one in my family embraces this. As a matter of fact, they go to pains to not let me sit next to these relatives. <laughs> I just don't know what good it does. I'm going to be honest with you. There was a time when I was uh, more in the we need to find our common ground um, uh, arena. But I have exited that arena very much because I don't think that a person who is still, after all that has happened, with Donald Trump, that is still a Donald Trump supporter. I do not have any expectation whatsoever that that person can be reasoned with. Um, I, I don't. And and maybe that may sound cynical, but it's a, honestly, it's just sort of reality-based. I mean, when's the last time, <laughs> you know, you've seen a Trump supporter change their mind? Or, you know, uh, I mean, we hear constantly like, well, you just need to reach out and understand that. I'm like, when... Point me to the first Trump supporter who has tried to understand me mm-hmm. <laughs> or who has tried to understand maybe a transgender kid or tried to understand, you know, a family that has fled violence in South America and is in this country. I don't see it. I see the onus always being on liberals to understand Trump supporters. I understand Trump supporters right now. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> I do. I I understand them. And sorry, buddy, we are not playing in the same ballpark here. So, I, you know, I'm happy to listen if somebody wants to start acknowledging, you know, the damage that's been done to this country, the damage that could be done to this country if he's reelected. But I'm not going to sit there and waste my time uh, trying to convince somebody when they're in my mind lost. They're just lost. I don't know if you are um, reading Adam Kinzinger. He started a Substack, and it's so interesting we're talking about this because the one that arrived in my mailbox at 8 o'clock this morning is titled Grandmas for Trump. He's there, Taylor Swift. Don't try to dissuade them. They're not just followers. They're cult members. And he admits that, you know, that it's not that they're a majority in this country, But they are um, he said it's really interesting because in his observation, because he said a lot of these people used to live in his district um, and in generally he used to see these elderly white women. They would defer to their husbands or not want to talk politics until Donald Trump came along and they think he is cool and they think he is sexy. Honest to God, it's like he is their Taylor Swift. And he says, given the super glue of fandom that binds them to Trump, the baby boomer grandmas and others must be considered an unmovable force. And I think that's exactly exactly what you're saying. This has gone beyond, you know, I like his policies or I, you know, I like that he um, hates immigrants. I mean, this is I mean, this is Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of of dedication. Yeah, I agree. And I, and again, I, I do not, you know, spend your time finding, uh, people who might vote 
and talking to them about things. Find, mm-hmm. you know, find people who maybe are slightly on the bubble or who feel just, you know, feel disappointed in Biden and talk to them about some of the things that have been done and, and you know, try to find some common ground there. And don't waste your time talking to, you know, hardcore yeah. mega folks. They're not, they are where they are and they're not going to change their mind. And look, I don't mean that from like a, you know, hateful standpoint, whatever. People no, are it's be what just that it's, it's just, not, it's just a waste of time. Yeah. yeah. They're following him. Like you might follow a politician because you like their stance on civil rights, but this isn't, right. this isn't issue oriented. It isn't anything other than a cult of personality. I mean, Jordan Klepper from the daily show. I mean, how many Trump <laughs> rallies has he been to yeah. where he's talking to these people? And he said, well, yeah, but you wouldn't follow Trump if he did X. And they go, oh, no, he'd never do X. And Jordan would say, well, actually, you know, he recently did X. And they'd be like, oh, oh, well, I don't care. You know, that's all right that he does it. I mean, it's just um, it's uh, the most incredible pretzel logic. Well, I just I also yeah. want you to know that for a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, you know, I was passing along the advice that I'd get gotten from a lot of, you know, political observers that, you know, you start with your common humanity. You know, you look for that Venn diagram overlap. You know, you both like kids. You both like puppies. You both like rescue shelters and you start talking about those things. And then maybe you can move on from once you've established that you recognize and appreciate each other's humanity, maybe you can move on from there. That's what I said for a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. Right before Thanksgiving, though, I decided to offer the listeners a different way to handle Thanksgiving. And it was perfectly summed up to go back to The Daily Show by um, they, uh, The Daily Show did this big uh, videotape of that you could hire Leslie Jones to come to your Thanksgiving table oh, and yeah. interrupt yeah. any kind of uh, problems. <laughs> and the beginning of it, you know, is very is, you know, uh, gives some actual strategies. But my favorite was the way it ended. Paul Shavari has that sound. Paul, play that now. I'll just say these transgender people. Th- ah! <laughs> ah, 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 I just. Ah! Leslie will even stop by the kids' table to teach them how to shout down problematic relatives. No, no, okay, look, from the diaphragm, you ready? One, two, three. Talking to your family is hard. Watching Leslie Jones shut them down is easy. And I think it should be acknowledged that this dinner is taking place on Cherokee land. Shut up! All this land is Cherokee. If we talking about, can you spell indigenous? You can't even spell it, can you? Shut up! Don't agree with me. Thank you for that. Shut up. So that's kind of where I left my listeners, Rex. I, uh, and that's also why my family won't let me sit next to those relatives, is because I think that they're pretty sure I will employ either the diaphragmatic scream or the just shut up. I don't know. Maybe I've been doing this show too long. Maybe I need a vacation, Rex. No, no, I think you're right there. I think a lot of people are there, too. And, I, and I, first of all, that bit was so funny. I was dying laughing when I saw that. But um, uh, but I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think we're where we were, you know, certainly not six plus 
eight plus years or however long ago it was when, you know, all of us first, <laughs> I can't even remember when this all started, mm-hmm. but when it started, uh, I, you know, I, I think people, a lot of people at least who do not like Donald Trump. And this includes uh, a lot of Republicans too, who have had it. And, and, uh, you know, people like Kinzinger and uh, others uh, just, you know, day-to-day Republicans who are disgusted by Trump. And I don't think that the patience level for people who believe the election was stolen is very, uh, (laughs) it's very long. I think most people are kind of like, all right, all right, let's come on. You know, if if that's where we're starting, then we're done talking because that's just, uh, you know, that's like starting with, you know, talking about Bigfoot being real or something. So no offense to the <laughs> Bigfoot, Bigfoot is real, Mr. Yeah, Hupke. My All bad. Right, Rex, <laughs> yeah, terrible, terrible comparison. Rex Hupke <laughs> and I are going to take a break. We're going to be back in just a few minutes. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. Uh, how long have you been with USA Today now, Rex? Uh, it's going to be two years in February, so I'm creeping up wow. on uh, on two years. Yeah, I know, right? It's going fast. Right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but last year, didn't you figure out a way to still do uh, the money-raising thing that you do for the food pantry? <laughs> you know, I did, and I've. <clears throat> you're actually, uh, yeah, you're... You're slightly breaking news here, though not exactly the best news, because uh, I haven't really uh, gone out on this uh, publicly. But I am this year. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm going to be finding some ways on via social media, kind of in a lower, uh, slightly lower profile way, I guess, to to uh, do some stuff and encouraging people to work with uh, the Greater Chicago Food Depository and Feeding America, but. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I've done this for, I don't know how many years. It's been a long time. I've been doing the food drive stuff for a long time, and I just kind of needed a, a break this year. It, it's a lot. and Oh, it um, is. And so, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we just decided it went well last year, you know, with the, considering the transition to USA Today, and I want to bring it back. But we just decided this year we're going to. We're going to set it aside for now, unfortunately, but uh, but we're going to, you know, try coming back around. And like I said, I'll be doing some things via my columnist, you know, page on Facebook and, and Twitter and some other stuff. And I'll, and I'll certainly be writing a column or two or three, uh, you know, relating to food insecurity and stuff this time of year and, and encouraging people to help out. I just don't have a specific um, platform for that this year. Well, you know, you can um, you can always come here on WCPT and we can do it together. But, you know, it um, it's a great it's a great way to raise the profile. But certainly people know that this is that all year round food pantries and food depositories, they need donations. And um, whether it's your donation, if you're going to the grocery store or whether you can just send them some some money. Um, you know, I was talking to which I, recently I was talking to um, the director of the Greater Chicago uh, Food Depository. And, you know, we both agreed, you know, this is the time of year when everybody thinks about the need. Everybody's aware of the need. Everybody wants to do something. But it's 24 7, 365 days a year. I mean, it's yeah, not it suddenly is. like yeah. in January, oh, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Everybody has all the food they will ever need. 
Um, you know, it just does. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, yeah, it's very true. And one of the things I, I really like about uh, the the donations to uh, Greater the Greater Chicago Food Depository, primarily since they're the ones that I worked with the most over the years, uh, the cash donations are great because that does tend to carry over more. Uh, all donations are fantastic. If you're giving food, you know, that can go to pantries, that's amazing. Good. Keep doing that. That's wonderful. Um, but when they have these virtual food drives uh, where people donate money, uh, that allows that gives the the, pantry, the food depository a little bit more flexibility. Right. So they are. Well, and also they because they buy their stuff directly from distributors, their money goes farther. It was it was (laughs) Man Yi Ling, uh, the director of communications from the Greater Chicago Food Depository. I talked to her on Tuesday, the 21st, right before the holiday. And, you know, she was, um, as I fully expected, you know, reminding people that the need is year round. And because they have these relationships, I forget the ratio, but it's like, you know, we, if we give them a dollar, they can buy like a dollar and 35 cents worth of food. They get a little more bang for the buck. Oh yeah. In some cases, a lot more bang. Yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable because they have a very, very smart uh, kind of national network um, where they, you know, they get, because they buy in such large numbers, they get excellent deals. They also, you know, sometimes there'll be like a, an extra, like a truck full of stuff that, for some reason, isn't getting to where it's going or the order got canceled or something and, and it'll reroute and come to them. Uh, you know, so they, they just have an amazing uh, setup there. I always refer to them as like the Amazon of, of food, <laughs> food gathering. They're just brilliant and, and they do an excellent job and, and they help so many people. Um, so I will always uh, be an advocate for uh, for them and what they do and just generally for encouraging people to to get out there and help however you can. I mean, again, you can donate money, you can donate cans of food, you can go help out at a food pantry. All of these things make a a difference, and the need is just so uh, great, and sadly it is always uh, a tremendous need, um, which is terrible and shouldn't be the case in this country, but but that's it. I mean, and I don't mean like now because of any economic thing. I mean, it's just like just, Always. <laughs> I mean, it's well, just, yeah, that's we one of the not- things that I was uh, surprised about, because we all knew that during the pandemic there the need went through the roof. And I said, so um, have you seen it get better since the pandemic's ended? And she was like, no, not really. And, and yeah. you know, it's um, it is a it is a really, really tough situation. But well, you know, the, it's I like think one we of the talking about people who, you know, make a big deal out of every Thanksgiving. The family goes to a soup kitchen to serve food. And I said, to, you know, but the other 364 days, they're dying for volunteers. And one day of the year, yeah. they've got more volunteers than they know what to do with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I certainly, I mean, I'm never going to criticize anybody for uh, any type of philanthropy whenever it comes. But I do think it's important to, to remember that, uh, this is not, I mean, if you want to do something over the holidays, think about perhaps a way to make it a monthly thing that you do or, you know, something like that. And I think one of the most important things I learned in working with them over the years that honestly I hadn't thought a lot about, and I think it's such an important point, is the, you know, people think of 
uh, food pantries is like something uh, that extremely low income uh, people rely on constantly. But the reality is that you have a lot more people who uh, are working, uh, you know, paying taxes or doing all, you know, they're doing all the right things, but they're in that, they're along that line where it just takes one thing to knock them off track. So you get one big medical bill, uh, you know, your kid breaks an arm or uh, your car breaks down or something like that. And all of a sudden your ability to budget your money and make and, and pull everything off is skewed. And so for a month or maybe two months, you need to go to that pantry to supplement. And then, after that's happened and you're, you, you know, you kind of get back to equilibrium, you keep going so that, you know, it is, it is essential for people who flat out cannot afford food and are, and are really struggling. It is also essential for keeping people who are along that line of, yeah. of just having sort of one foot out of, you know, poverty. Uh, it's keeping them from, from falling deeper into debt or not having enough food to, to feed their family. So it's a, uh, it's so vital and, and it's such a, uh, important thing. And I, and I, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I don't understand how we're not able to make sure that everybody in this country can eat. I, I've never understood that. And I may never, hopefully someday we find a way, but in the meantime, people can certainly do things to help. Yes. Um, we need to take another break. And when uh, Rex Hupke and I come back, we will either talk about the Republican nominees for president or Moms for Liberty or Taylor Swift. You won't oh. know till you come back after this break. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. Uh, spin that topic dial. Okay, Rex, do you have a favorite among the three that I just mentioned? Oh, boy. Uh, Taylor Swift is always tempting. But <laughs> I, think I, might go, I think I might go with GOP presidential candidates. Maybe. Oh, for, for 400, Alex. That's a great category. Yeah. Uh, so Nikki Haley, I guess she's hot now, right? She's surging, yes. Surging. Uh, do you think she'll get out of single digits? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's okay. Wow, well, she, did get good news. she could break she into did. double digits. <laughs> she got good news today with the um, uh, the Cokes. Let's see, what was it? The, the Cokes. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. The rich dudes. Uh, they the Cokes came in and are throwing their uh, substantial money uh, behind her, which is. Honestly, the thing I like most about this is it's it's just another humiliation for Ron DeSantis. <laughs> and, I, and those are like silver Christmas, lining, those are like baby. Christmas presents to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just I love to see anything that makes Ron DeSantis sad is is okay in my book. But um, well, you know, he is so, apparently uh, very unhappy about these uh, these donations that are about to come Nikki Haley's way. He is not a happy yeah. camper about that. Yeah, I mean, he's very, he's been done for a long time. Uh, he just won't admit it, but he's super done now. This will certainly uh, deplete him. I mean, he'll probably keep going because, you know, never, isn't never back down. <laughs> isn't that the, their well, motto? You know, or I wondered about that. I wondered, yes. he's not an old guy, he's a young guy. Um, yeah. You know, you would think that he would see the writing on the wall 
and say, you know what, I can live to fight in 2028 and maybe I can come on stronger then. But he's just um, head down and he is moving forward like, you know, one of the Chicago Bears. Right. Any any question as to whether he's politically smart has has been cast down uh, very swiftly here because the right move. I believe, and I think a lot of people did believe, would have been to wait, let Trump flame out, and then come back in 2028, which in the meantime, it's possible he could have worked on his personality a little bit, because that is clearly his biggest weakness, uh, in that he doesn't appear to have one. So, um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, yeah, this has been a, a train wreck, and in, in every sense, it's, it's one of the most... I mean, you know, to go from he appeared like he was the next uh, GOP savior to just being an absolutely mercilessly uh, mocked at all times. And uh, he's going to unceremoniously depart at some point. Uh, so, I, but I mean, Nikki Haley, <clears throat> frankly, I'm glad, I'm glad she's doing better because, and a lot of, uh, you know, liberals will recoil hearing me say this. So please pause for an explanation. But, uh, you know, I, I I would rather see her than any of them. And I say that knowing full well that I think she probably has the best chance of any of them of beating Biden. Um, I don't want that to happen. Uh, I don't want her personally to be president. I don't line up with her ideologically in any way, shape or form. But out of if you line up Trump and all the other whoever remains now, uh, if I had to pick one uh, who at least I would probably be able to sleep at night and knowing that there's not a, you know, completely unhinged, you know, fascist leaning, you know, weirdo in charge, it would be her. And so I, I don't think Biden is, uh, I think he's got a lot going for him in this reelection, but I don't think he's a lock against anyone. And if you're not going to be a lock, if there's a possibility he doesn't win, I want somebody in charge who, doesn't scare the tuna salad enemy, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, so again, I'm not saying I like, I'm not a Nikki Haley uh, fan or supporter. It's simply that I value our uh, country's safety and, and everything too much to want to see Biden versus, you know, a complete maniac. Which I is have what to Trump ask is, you, though. Um, The Republican Party, not that this isn't present in both parties, because it absolutely is. But my sense is that there's been even more misogyny in the Republican Party than in the Democratic Party. I could potentially see some of particularly the older white guys who... um, are very present in the Republican Party, not wanting to vote for Nikki Haley simply because she's a woman. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, when we did the whole postmortem on all the different things that went wrong in Hillary's campaign, it certainly wasn't the deciding factor, but it certainly was a factor. Do you think somehow Nikki Haley will escape that? Uh, Not really. I mean, I think that is a huge factor. The only thing that might the the right's hatred for Biden might override any you know in, in any deep seated sexism on that side. Um, but the truth is, 
the only way she prevails is if Trump leaves. I, I don't think nobody's going to beat Trump at this point. He's too far ahead. It just isn't doable. Even if the even if everybody else drops down and they coalesce around Nikki Haley, I see very very little possibility that any of them beat Trump. Uh, and so this would all require Trump to step aside, which you know, if depending on how the legal stuff goes, it's not impossible. It's highly unlikely. In the event that that was to happen and Nikki Haley was to get the nomination, uh, she will, the issue of abortion is going to loom huge, as it will for any Republican Mm -hmm. presidential candidate. Um, And she's going to have a big problem there, even though I think of all of them, she has sort of danced around it the the best, although, again, still not in a way that I agree with. Uh, And uh, also, if Trump's not there, then the whole <laughs> the whole mega crowd is deflated and they're not going to show up. So anyway, it's a I mean, you can tease this stuff out 80 million different ways. But but, uh, you know, if I had to pick one person who could beat Biden, very possibly it would be Nikki Haley at the same time. I don't think Nikki Haley would stand a very good chance of beating Biden. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, it, it, I, it, I absolutely um, followed followed that reasoning. But one thing you just mentioned, I think, would uh, be something used to tear her apart if for some reason. And by the way, I don't think that even a conviction, unless it is a conviction that carries with it the caveat that he cannot hold office, I think that even if he's convicted of a crime, he's still going to stay. He's absolutely going to stay in the race. I think the only thing that could take Donald Trump out of the race at this moment is a medical incident. And it would have to be it would have to be pretty severe. But Nikki Haley, as you just referenced, much of the time she tries to have it both ways. She Mm -hmm. knows that she needs to be a certain way to get the majority of the voters in the middle, but she can't be so obvious as to alienate the ones in the far right. And I think ever since she was ambassador to the United Nations, she's been flippy floppy. And I think that a good opponent who brings that out will just make her look weak. And that's the last thing a female candidate needs is for somebody to make them look like they can't make up their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all it's all dicey. Uh, but the one thing I will say that, that's happening more broadly right now among Democrats and people on the left in particular is that everybody's just absolutely flipping out about this poll and that poll and oh my uh, gosh and Biden You know, I've Biden stopped that. reporting on the polls because yeah, yeah. you know, I think A we're way too far away and also it's like, you know, pick your poll. You know, you can right. find a poll that backs you up on pretty much any belief. I saw a clip Jen Saki, she wasn't doing her show. She was uh, making a speech somewhere. And she said, mm-hmm. I can tell you from having been in different administrations, she said the polls right now are meaningless. They are meaningless. She said what I have seen every presidential election that I've been involved with. She said a few months before the election, she said something will happen. In 2008, we had the economy crash. Um, you know, something will happen. And 
people will focus on that. And whatever happens, whether it's in August or September, that will be what they use, that event and how it affects them. That will determine how they vote. She said, that's what I've seen presidential election after presidential election. So she said, you know, right now, don't even pay attention to the polls because they're worthless. Seemed to make a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah, there's just a tremendous amount of hand-wringing right now, and, I, and it, it is nonsensical. I mean, frankly, Americans don't have a long enough attention span to, to predict, like, how they're going to feel two weeks from now, much less a year from, from the election. So there are, you know, Democrats have to do the work. they got to put in the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, Biden is not uh, being credited for the positive things that have happened with the economy, of which there are actually a lot, even if people are not completely feeling them yet. Um, so they got a ton of work to do there. There's there are a multitude of areas. There's no uh, I, if I'm, you know, in and thank God I'm not in politics, but uh, there's no earthly way that I am going to feel confident you know, at any point, mm-hmm. <laughs> this process, they should go forward with extreme fear and pessimism and let that be a driver uh, is what I would recommend, because the uh, the, the uh, stakes are, are unbelievably high. Rex, before I let you go today, of course, I know you're aware that Rosalind Carter had her big funeral service today in Atlanta, Georgia. All the former first ladies were there. A lot of Biden was there. Um Bill Clinton was there. Jimmy Carter himself was there. Did you ever cover or write about Rosalind Carter that you can recall? I, no, I have not. I've, I've never had any anything to do directly or even indirectly with the Carters, uh, either of them. But i certainly familiar with both her and, and him and, and just the uh, rather remarkable and positive things they have done over the years. I mean, I, I, you know, I think talk about a presidency that is not necessarily looked upon as being a huge success, but the, the post presidency is looked upon with, you know, uh, tremendous admiration, I think. And, and, you know, just, uh, a great deal of decency, which we're presently missing. So, yeah, I didn't really, um, and I know Paul, we, we got to wrap this up. I didn't, remember a lot about her when she entered hospice i started rereading about her and she was really the first lady who kind of created the mold for the activist first lady we've known to come and expect what's your cause what are you going to be working for rosalind carter started that um and people actually gave her husband grief like oh she's telling jimmy carter what to do and how to be president because she was (laughs) she was involved and she cared about more than just being a hostess she really was a, a pretty remarkable woman. And Rex Hupke is a pretty remarkable guy, and we love it when he joins us on the radio. Nice. Let's you call that a major market nice. segue. Yeah, I like that. Very nice. <laughs> um, that's going to do it. Talk to you. Yeah, you too. That's going to do it uh, for us today. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next. Santita will, of course, be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. to start our day. I will join you tomorrow at 2. And remember, Thursday from 3 to 5 on my show, we're going to be doing a a Zoom, a diversity, equity, and inclusion live Zoom panel. Yeah, you can hear it on the radio, but you can also um, get in touch with us and request a Zoom link and watch us all live in real life from 3 to 5 on Thursday. So join us for that, won't you? 
Uh, Again, I will see you tomorrow at 2. Stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night.